Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So on this episode, you're really just stuck with me. I'm flying solo again. And this is an Ask Me Anything episode, and I've been meaning to really add to the first one that I did in May, and been promising pretty much on a fortnightly basis that I will be releasing one of these. But the questions have been mounting up, and I've been really wanting to tackle some of them. Also, we're now recording this on the 18th of September, and we've now hit 10,000 downloads, or just over 10,000 downloads of the podcast. And that's really just been since the first episode was released back in April. So I'm delighted with the response. I'm really pleased at the conversations and insights and perspectives from the excellent guests that I've had on the show have been valuable and have been meaningful for a whole range of clinicians who've been listening. So thank you very much. And I have got some great episodes lined up. So stay tuned. So I'm just going to jump straight in there with the first question. So the first question is, do I have any advice for aspiring osteopaths? Maybe three things I wish I'd known. Okay, so that's cut straight to the chase. I'm going to premise my response firstly with just saying that being a healthcare professional is a privilege and being able to spend time and being in a position to be able to support and guide and hopefully help patients or people out of painful situations and circumstances is a real delight but in terms of specifically the sorts of things that I wish I knew prior to becoming an osteopath I think one of the things that I wasn't prepared for wasn't aware of was the somewhat some of the challenges in terms of career I'm delighted that I've managed to I'm delighted that I work in an academic institution and can can express my intellectual and career ambitions, but osteopathy is a reasonably small profession, and so there are, there are limited opportunities and limited roles that graduates can take outside clinical practice, or rather outside private clinical practice. So I think what I wasn't prepared for was the, perhaps the lack of diversity in roles, and sure, those opportunities are out there if you look for them, and they are growing in number with osteopathy now being part of the allied health profession family in the UK. But nonetheless, they're still pretty limited and can be quite hard to find. So I think the first thing was just the somewhat limited opportunities that one can have outside private clinical practice. I think the second thing I'd wish I'd known is that you know, I don't know to what extent this would have changed my decision to be an osteopath, but I suppose I wasn't prepared for the dissonance within the profession and the the variance in views and beliefs around some core aspects of our clinical work, views on evidence-based practice, what constitutes expertise in osteopathy, the role of your research in clinical decision-making, 
the role of history and tradition in clinical practice. So these are all very much kind of fiercely debated and very much up for grabs. So I wasn't, you know, naively, I, I presume that there would be cohesion and solidarity amongst clinicians. And I don't for one minute believe that there's any profession out there which has such a cohesive workforce all subscribing to the same professional values. But it was just something that I wasn't prepared for. Whether or not I wish I knew that or or to what extent that might have changed my decision-making when deciding what healthcare career to embark on, I'm, I'm not so sure. So maybe that's something I didn't know rather than something I wish I'd known. I think I I wish I'd known how difficult it would have been to shake the public perception and I guess, and also colleagues, other health professional colleagues' perceptions of what osteopathy is about, that it is largely about manipulating the spine and addressing you know, perceived or imagined dysfunctions in people's spine and bodies. You know, that's a, it's a hard reputation to shake off. And, and I think that to have such a narrow professional identity and professional perception makes it quite challenging. Or rather, to have the sort of professional reputation and perception that one doesn't want to live up to can be quite challenging and does affect morale. So th- that's all quite depressing. And it wasn't intended to be a a kind of bashing of of osteopathy at all but these are some of the things I, I wasn't aware of and it would have been nice to know of but you know to what extent they would have changed my decision making I don't know who wants to have regrets and I am where I am so let's get to a cheerier note what are your thoughts and views on online healthcare or telehealth um so that's a good question my view is, has changed somewhat so I think initially at the beginning of lockdown when we were all pretty much forced to either do nothing clinically or move our clinical practice into the online sphere or telehealth sphere, you know, naturally something was better than nothing. And, you know, I thought that online consultations were a great option. They probably sat well with my bias, meaning that because online consultations or telehealth really place non-physical skills such as communication and relationship forming and education at the forefront and these are the sorts of skills that I am biased towards I naturally jumped to some extent on the bandwagon that really all we need is online consultations we really don't need to physically touch or interact with our patients in any way but like most of the pandemic and lockdown the novelty wears off so initially I quite like the idea of spending most of the day in my pyjamas, not going to work, spending time with my family. But pretty much after a while, the novelty wears off and you just want something more. And so I probably got a bit carried away with the whole online consultation and the value. It certainly is better than nothing. And you know, I did a podcast, I think with podcast two, with David Ho and Hirsch Smits, in which you talk about remote MSK. So it they definitely have their place and they can be really helpful and are certainly an option for some patients and are certainly better than nothing. But I I do feel that in-person consultations offer an opportunity to obtain cues and to, to make connections that online or telehealth really doesn't offer you. You know, the ability to 
to read the patients, their body language, those physical cues, which which you just don't get with an online consultation, and the inability to to control those contextual factors, which I talked about with Giacomo Rossettini a while back, I, I think does to some extent you tie your hands a little bit in terms of the sorts of care or the richness of the care that you can give. I'm I'm not aware of some of the research around this area and to what extent online consultations or or rather how online consultations compare with physical live healthcare consultations. I do wonder what the patient's perceptions are and how they find the experience of online consultations. It seems it's very much or the discourse has been about how we find it as clinicians and whether we find it easy, challenging, helpful, beneficial. But I just wonder what, you know, if there's any qualitative work that's been done about the value that patients have drawn from it. So I think in short, my view has shifted from being truly thinking that this is the saviour of healthcare and we needn't ever physically see patients again to actually, you know, I've missed that physical interaction with patients and being with a patient whilst they're in pain or whilst they're distressed. And I think that those in-person consultations or those in-person interactions do offer something in addition to the online consultation. But I recognise that online consultations are certainly valuable for some patients and will be preferred by some patients and are better than nothing. Okay, next question. How much pain education do you give? Um, but I didn't really give any pain education, certainly not in the way that the question implies that I'm giving education like it was some intervention or pill. But I certainly like to introduce information around pain and why things hurt and the sorts of beliefs and behaviours which feed into someone's pain experience. I'll certainly try and thread some of that information into their existing framework that the patient might hold around their their problem. So it's a very subtle weaving of some information and knowledge in this field, which needs to sit and, and to be meaningful and to be relevant into how they conceptualize and view their problem. So it isn't a sit down, you know, PowerPoint out, going through a set of topics to cover. And so, you know, if I identify that there are unhelpful or or certain beliefs which come up in, in our conversation, which I feel can be addressed either in the moment or at some other point in the consultation or the interaction, then I'll do that. And then another thing which I've which I try and do is just gauge the appetite on behalf of the patient in regards to how much information they want, you know, what sort of depth what sort of language, rather than just spilling a whole load of information to patients which really aren't ready for it or aren't interested. So I might say things like, has anyone ever spoken to you about X, Y, or Z? Would you be interested in hearing a bit more? Or something like, some people find it helpful when they understand things in this way, or why it hurts when they do this. Would you like to spend a bit of time talking about that? So I think in answer to the question, I think trying to integrate some of this information into the conversation in the least abrupt and invasive way as possible. 
but whilst at the same time trying to gauge the patient's own preferences and an appetite for this sort of approach. And if they don't want it, then that's fine. But I'm also interested into why why they hold some of those reservations or a lack of appetite for that sort of information. Next question. So have you ever taught manual therapy? The answer is yes. I used to spend quite a bit of time teaching osteopath manual therapy. And I taught throughout Scandinavia and I taught in different parts of Europe and, and the UK. And I was a pretty strident manual therapist applying anatomy and biomechanics pretty stringently to my technique. You know, I was always interested in how stuff works and it's easy to look at anatomy. And a really good example is going to those the Body Worlds exhibitions with the plasticized cadavers. And you can, you know, it, it's, you marvel at the intricacy of anatomy, the connectedness of the human body. And it's seductive to apply that framework to the physical and manual interventions that we have. But it turns out that it's really missing a very large part of what it is to, to help someone recover from pain or disability. So I've taught manual therapy in institutions or environments where the rigidity of the models and the the strong biomechanics embedded in the models would just make your eyes bleed and you would be weeping for days. But I've also worked in institutions where it's been a lot more flexible and you can incorporate the teaching of manual therapy into more contemporary models of health and pain, etc., but I, I do sympathise with those that teach manual therapy because it's becoming a little bit trickier to do so. I think, as I said before in previous episodes, it can be a real challenge to teach the motor skills of manual therapy, the specificity in terms of direction and location and force, whilst at the same time underplaying lots of the biomechanics and anatomical aspects to it. That's a really challenging balancing act that I found too difficult and so stepped away from teaching that. Next question. Have you always had the BPS model as your way of thinking or how did you start? So no, no, as I said before, my clinical practice was was really embedded in biomechanics and anatomy. I you know bought the Thomas Myers anatomy chains anatomy trains book and lots of other similar anatomically and biomechanically orientated texts and so no it was a journey like many others where you it's a case of reading experiencing talking to more experienced clinicians that have been on similar journeys and recognizing that it is a journey and it's quite easy to fall back into biomedical or biomechanical thinking and you know it's a well-trodden path anatomy and biomechanics and many of us are indoctrinated in our education and so it's no surprise that we we dip back into it from time to time. So next question how would you approach a patient presenting with chronic pain coming from a strong biomedical approach from previous healthcare professionals that comes to you but is expecting a passive treatment? 
would you still do hands-on on the first sessions or not? I think, as I've said before, you know, that rarely in clinical practice are there dichotomous answers, hands-on or hands-off. I think if hands-on is safe, even with questionable effectiveness, if it meets some of the patient's expectations and preferences and values, and you recognise that by delivering that sort of intervention, it's for a longer term gain, which is to develop a relationship which is trusting and respectful, i.e. you're respecting their desire to have a particular intervention, that I don't personally see a problem with it in the short term, because the alternative is that you just say, no, you're not having this intervention, it really isn't effective, and you're wasting your time. And you could say that, and for some patients, they might accept that as an answer and continue to see you not receiving that treatment. But you do run the risk that they say, okay, I understand to your face, but then you know, consult someone else down the road that will give them the sort of treatment they're looking for. So a little bit like with SCANs, I'm not going to have a fight with a patient over the sorts of treatments that they do want or don't want. Obviously, if manual therapy or particular intervention is contraindicated or is unsafe, then I'll have that discussion with patients. But I'm certainly interested into why they want certain treatments, what those underpinning beliefs, expectations, and previous experiences from those treatments or about those treatments are, how they might have helped them in the past, just being quite critical about how they're describing the benefits of the treatment that they've experienced. For example, they might say something like, oh, when I've had manual therapy in the past, it's really helped me for a few days. I would acknowledge that as a as a benefit, but also highlight the fact that, that or touch on the point that it seems like the manual therapy has provided some short-term relief, which is great. It sounds like you're looking for something a little bit longer term this time. And we know that there are some other approaches or additional approaches which might help create that longer term change so like all of these things it's giving taking negotiating rather than just upfront refusal yeah that's really no way to conduct or develop a collaborative therapeutic relationship so next question what are your thoughts of historical concepts and traditional ideas within your osteopathy practice. Hmm. So when I started out as an osteopath or as a student, I read a lot of the historical work and really tried to immerse myself in some of that stuff. It was probably as meaningless now as it was then. So in terms of the actual messages within some of those books, I really don't think they they add much at all to contemporary current clinical practice and would probably go as far to say that that they actually might take away more positive or favourable sides of our clinical practice in so much as they often, you know, given the time in which they were written, that they relegate the patient's voice and decision-making capabilities and values and preferences you know, they're rarely mentioned in the early osteopathic textbooks. And I can understand why, 
that is the case. But to base our current practice on some of these historical documents and literature, to me, just seems seems crazy. I talked a bit about this with Dave Newell a couple of episodes ago. So the way that history really shapes my clinical practice is probably only by way of that my practice is situated within a particular time and my clinical approach is in the context of the current knowledge and evidence that we currently have. So to some extent I am bound by time but that also means that as our knowledge changes, as evidence changes, as our values change, I hope that my clinical practice changes accordingly. So anchoring our clinical work to tradition or historical ideology, I really don't see makes for any or lead to any particularly good outcome in terms of professional development. So that's it for this Ask Me Anything episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.